0: We are in Luke and we have just finished prayer and we talked about the friend at midnight and the unjust judge. So what we're going to talk about tonight is the next thing in the chiasm which is signs of the kingdom. This outline was by Kenneth Bailey from his book Poet and Peasant. And as I mentioned last time when we were talking about prayer, guy named Brad Young, who has also written a book on the parables, disagrees with Bailey on prayer. And so I'm sort of of the opinion that Young is probably correct, but I still like Bailey's outline. So there we are. So anyway, signs of the kingdom. And you can see the chiasm there is broken into two parts. One is the present kingdom and the other one is the kingdom to come. So... So we're in Luke 11, and we'll pick it up at 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Several things going on here, obviously. One is, of course, he's casting out demons. One of the signs of the kingdom is that you have people in your midst that are able to do that. The ascribing of his power to Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, is the thing that causes him to change from speaking plainly to speaking in parables. The same incident is in Matthew 12. Up until that time in Matthew 12, he speaks plainly. No camouflage whatsoever. After that time, he starts to speak in parables. So in Matthew, then we get the parable of the sower and the kingdom parables. And when he does the parable of the sower... His disciples come to him privately and say, what are you talking about? What does all that mean? And he goes ahead and explains to them what the parable of the sower means. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 at that point. And he says to you, his disciples, it's given to know the meaning of these things. But to the people in Israel, it is not given to know. So he continues from that point to speak in parables. And if you remember Isaiah 6, what happens there is God tells Isaiah to make the heart of the people dull so that they will hear but not understand. And of course, the reason for that is God has decided that they're going into exile. So what he does is he covers their eyes and ears, the prophets and the seers and lets them just go along because exile has been decreed at that point so he doesn't want them understanding and turning and being healed past a certain point that point in Yeshua's ministry is right here Yeshua starts off as a prophet continues as a prophet actually but he comes as a prophet with a standard message of repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. You guys need to repent. And when they don't, and in fact, they give credit for the things he does to Beelzebub, that's when he says, okay, too late. We're done. From now on, I'm going to speak in parables. And you guys are going into exile, which, of course, they do some 40 years later in 70 AD. So this is the watershed. As I say, you can see that very clearly in Matthew. It isn't quite so clear here, which is why Matthew is cross-referenced here. Oh, one other thing. But while others, to test him, kept seeking for him a sign from heaven. The idea of all the healings that he's done and the demons he's cast out and all of those kinds of things, you would think would be enough but there are always those who want just one more and then we'll be sure but of course the point is they will never be sure because what they do is keep raising the bar so the people that are desiring these signs are in fact not sincere so now verse 17 but he knowing their thoughts said to them every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. By the way, Beelzebul means the lord of the flies, just so you know. Beelzebul and Beelzebub are different things. Beelzebub, as I remember, I'm doing this off the top of my head. If somebody wants to check me, by all means, go ahead is a pagan god. In other words, a pagan deity of some kind. Beelzebul is sort of a contemptuous Hebrew-Jewish reference to that. In other words, it's a deliberate mispronunciation of the name to show contempt. Verse 18 again. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul... And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. One of the things that's going on here, obviously, is that Jews had exorcism rituals as well. And one of the sort of amusing vignettes in the book of Acts is you have the seven sons of Sceva, I believe, is his name, and They are exorcists. So they start seeing the success that the apostles are having with demons. And they say, we're cast you out by this Jesus that the apostles talk about. The demon looks at him and says, Jesus, I know. The apostles, I know. I don't know you. And proceeds to beat the whop out of them. And they run off bruised and battered. But anyway, the point is that the Jews do have exorcists. Verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is talking about Yeshua, who is obviously the king. And so what he's saying is, if I'm doing this by the finger of God, then you should recognize that the kingdom of God is here. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he has trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now that's going to take a little unpacking. The metaphor obviously of somebody stronger than the strong man. Who is the one who is stronger than the strong man here? Yeshua is. So he is stronger than the strong man who is guarding his goods, which would be the people that he has enslaved. So when Yeshua comes and attacks him, he is one who is stronger. And strips him of his armor and, and despoils him, which is to say, takes away the people that he has enslaved. So now, in verse 23, let's pause there for a minute. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather me scatters. What I take that to mean is there are no neutral parties. There's no Switzerland in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world. You're either on one side or the other. And what he's saying is, if you are not on my side, then by default, you are on the other side. Furthermore, I am here gathering. So what I'm doing is gathering disciples, gathering people into the kingdom of God. If you are not with me, what you are doing by default is scattering you're not even doing a particularly good job of gathering people into the kingdom of Satan. You're simply scattering the sheep. So as I read this, it is either the kingdom of God as led by Yeshua, or it is the world, which is all over the place. In fact, I read an interesting article. I think it's by the Brit Mormon that I read periodically. We tend to think that Satan is this clever mastermind who is able to do really great things. And what this guy's point was is, actually, that's not true. And what you have is you have within the kingdom of evil, people fighting each other. One of the things that we see in this country, not to put too fine a point on it, but we have people who are trying to tear the place down. And they can't even agree on that because they wind up fighting with each other. And the biblical way of saying that is let your enemies be confused and scattered. Remember, that's what we read when we open the Torah scroll. May those who hate you flee from before you. So the idea of confusion and scattering in the enemy camp is very biblical, and what Yeshua is saying here is if you're not on his side, you are in the confused and scattered camp. You're not doing any good. You're probably actively doing some harm, but you also are in a camp that is at war with itself. I think one of the reasons that Satan has won is he can't get any good help. They all wind up quarreling with each other. Evil is not cohesive. Alright, so now we're all the way down to 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says I will return to my house from which I came. I have no idea what the waterless places are. Obviously it's something spiritual and I have no idea what it is. Obviously the metaphor is a desert where you're out there with no water, but other than understanding the metaphor i don't know anything more about it so what happens is this demon has been cast spinning off into some place recollects gets his bearings and says huh i guess i'll go back and see if i can go back to the house from which i came and when he comes he finds the house swept and put in order then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Several things to mention here. Thing one is the house is empty. He comes back and he sees this empty house that's been all put in order and swept out and so forth, but there isn't anybody defending it. So he is able to go back in. And in the process, he says, To all of his buddies, hey, come on. I've got extra rooms in the house. You can all be there. That sort of thing, one. My personal perspective is that casting a demon out of an unbeliever is, in fact, not a service to that person. You can cast the demon out, but if that person is an unbeliever, then it doesn't get backfilled with the Holy Spirit. The person is left empty and defenseless and what winds up happening is when that demon comes back in, things are worse than they were when he started. Thing two, demons, the way they work, at least in my experience and observation and reading, is demons operate on something that you already want to do. If you've got a weakness for greed, pick one of your sins. If you've got a weakness for greed, what a demon will do is come alongside of you and whisper sweet nothings in your ear and say, ooh, that over there, you could get that. And we could get that. And that really rightly belongs to you. It's okay to take it. So what the demon does is talks to you In words that you want to hear. Just sort of step into Musar for just a minute. Everybody is made imperfect and incomplete. God made us that way. And we all have different strengths and different weaknesses. One person may be really good and real humble, but have a real problem with lust. Lust. Somebody else may not have a problem with lust, but may have raging pride. So we're all different, and we come issued from our mommies that way. Those of you who have more than one child know that when they come out, they are very different from their brothers and sisters. Everybody's unique. So, for example, if you don't have a predilection to lust, a demon who is pushing lust won't be able to get any purchase. He'll talk to you, but eh, I'm not interested in that. But when one comes along and talks about what you're interested in, your ears perk up and you start listening. Oh, that really sounds good. So the idea of this demon having been thrown out, that demon got in by invitation. For that demon to have been in the person to begin with, that person has a predilection to the particular sin that that demon is pushing. So when the demon gets thrown out, that person's personality has not changed. And so when the demon comes back and knocks on the door and says, did you really, really, really mean you want to get rid of me? The guy says, "Oh, well, talk to me some more about this, whatever it is. And you start listening again. And you start letting it back in. That's why it's necessary for the Holy Spirit. It's necessary for discipleship. All sorts of things have to happen when you cast a demon out. Otherwise, the person will eventually invite it back in. And is in worse shape than when he started. And one of the things a demon does is it takes you in a direction that you want to go but it pushes you farther than you would go by yourself. For example, the sex drive is perfectly healthy and normal because God made it for us. What a demon does is starts pushing and pushing and pushing, and pretty soon it's out of bounds. So let's say that that's our problem, that we have this spirit of lust. And demon comes in and talks to us and convinces us that, well, gee, let's bring along a spirit of addiction and we'll get drunk while we do it. So what happens is they work together in teams. So anyway, that's what's going on here. So we're all the way down to verse 27. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Obviously, she is impressed with his teaching, impressed with casting out, and she's giving him a compliment, and what I infer from his answer, this is a guess on my part, you don't like it, guess something else, go ahead, the word of God is the thing that keeps you safe from demons, that's your first line of defense. Because all this is in the context of casting out unclean spirits. Now, the next thing we're going to do is, remember, they're asking for a sign. They're attributing his casting out the demon to having the authority from Beelzebub. But they're also asking for a sign. Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. Remember? Remember? We said in Matthew 12 and 13, this is the watershed of his ministry. So this generation being an evil generation is consistent with that watershed. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be in this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the world to hear wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. Just a brief historical background. The queen of Sheba is what we're talking about here. You remember that Solomon, of course, was given extraordinary wisdom by God. And his reputation spread all over the region there. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is at the time of Solomon, Israel was not considered a major center of learning. The major centers of learning were Egypt and Babylon. Those were the big intellectual centers of the world at that time. So when Solomon pops up, it's sort of like in the Gospels, Somebody says, wait a minute, this guy's from Nazareth. Nobody ever came from Nazareth. It's that kind of an attitude. So when Solomon pops up with all of his wisdom, the queen of Sheba says, Canaan? Nobody ever comes from Canaan. If you want to go for learning, you go to Egypt or Babylon. So she trucks up there with a camel caravan loaded with lots of wealth and riches and spends a considerable time talking to him and learning from him. So, what Yeshua is saying here is, I have come to you as a prophet. I am a Jew. I am one of you. You're not listening to me. We sent a prophet to Nineveh, Jonah, and they listened and they repented in sackcloth and ashes and they bought themselves another 100 years. Furthermore, you've got me who is, he doesn't say it this way here, but I'm God incarnate. And you had a foreigner, the Queen of Sheba, come to Solomon who, compared to me, wasn't terribly wise, and you aren't listening to me. And we'll see the same thing when we get to the ten lepers who are cleansed. The only leper who comes back is a Samaritan. So again, this is all by way of saying, I came here as a prophet to Israel, to the Jews. You aren't listening to me. We've got Samaritans listening to me. we got the Queen of Sheba listening to Solomon. we got Nineveh repenting when i send a prophet to them what the heck is your problem guys it's that kind of a riff so luke 11:33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light your eye is the lamp of your body when your eye is healthy your whole body is full of light but when it is bad your body is full of darkness Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. All right, so metaphor here. A couple of things. In God's economy, the eye is a source of trouble. The very first sin of Eve was caused because she looked upon the fruit and she saw that it was beautiful and was desirable to make one wise. The whole vignette of Eve with the snake is a vignette through the eyes. What God says and Moses says in the Torah is, listen, hear, Shema. And in fact, in civil torts in Judaism, if someone gets blinded or made deaf, the compensation for one being made deaf is greater than the compensation for one being made blind. They recognize that being blind is not nearly as big a detriment as being deaf is, because being deaf cuts you off from conversation and everything else around you. In fact, one of the things uh, Rush Limbaugh used to say, he went deaf, and wound up getting cochlear implants so he was able to hear mechanically and one of the things he said which was very interesting is when you're deaf nobody cares so if someone is blind and you see them walking around putting their hands out people will come along to help but if you're deaf it's the only disability that people blame on you They think that you should be able to hear and they just keep talking louder. I found that very interesting in light of the way the Bible talks about sight and hearing. So this little section in 1133 through 36, I believe means keep your eyes from leading you into sin. That's, I think, the metaphor he's talking about. Because Jews would know that sight is not the preferred sense. When relating to God and everybody else, you're supposed to listen. In fact, one of the things that is said in the Torah is You didn't see an image of me, you shall not make graven images what you will not do is you will not use your eyes to lead you away from me, which is what happened with Eve. So what he's saying here, I believe, is your eyes are the light of your body. And if your eyes are kept from leading you into sin, then your whole body will be pure. I think that's what it means. That's the best I've got. If anybody's got any better ideas, by all means, jump in. One other thing. The idea of putting the lamp where it shines light on everybody as opposed to hiding it in the cellar. If your eyes are doing what they are supposed to do and you are walking according to God, you will be a beacon to other people. The idea there is if your eyes are not leading you astray you become then a source of light for other people and you can illuminate other people while you're at it that's the only thing i can get from that so now what we're going to do is we're going to skip forward to luke 17 which is the other side of our chiasm so we're going to go to luke 17 and we're going to pick it up in verse 11 On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance. The idea there is they are not approaching him because they are unclean. It's not that these people are shy. It's just that it is illegal for them to come too close to someone. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice, saying, Yeshua, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So you all know your Torah. Leprosy in biblical times is not the same thing as Hansen's disease today. With Hansen's disease, what happens is you start losing body parts. You lose feeling and you wind up damaging yourself because you have no feeling in your extremities and you start losing body parts. That's not what's going on here. It's been a while since we have been through Leviticus, so I will remind you that leprosy is a skin condition. Leprosy is diagnosed by the priest it is not diagnosed by a physician it is diagnosed by a priest and there's a sequence where once a priest diagnoses a person with leprosy he's put outside the camp for seven days and then he's checked again by the priest and if he's still leprous he's put out again and and then coming back in there's a ritual but the thing that tells you that this is not a communicable disease in the sense of we understand diseases which are transmitted by viruses and bacteria. If the leper gets to the point where leprosy has invested his entire body from head to foot, he is in fact declared clean and brought back into the camp. Once he starts to heal and the leprosy goes away, he's declared unclean again, and he's put back outside the camp while that uncleanness resolves itself so the idea that this is a disease that's transmitted by either a bacterium or a virus is not correct it is a spiritual condition and of course the first leper in scripture is Moses when God gives him the sign but the point is it's obviously something that is spiritual in nature because he's able to stick his hand in his bosom and draw it out, and it's leprous. He sticks his hand back in there draws it out, and it's healed. And the same with Miriam. She gets leprosy, and she's put outside the camp for seven days, and then it's brought back in at the end seven days, and they take off again. So we're not talking about a... Communicable disease. Well, I'm sorry, back up. It is communicable. According to the rabbis, this is rabbinic now, this is not scripture. So you're welcome to do with this whatever you like. According to the rabbis, leprosy is a punishment for Lashon Hara, which is the evil tongue. So if someone is a backbiting gossip The way you know to stay away from such a person because he's toxic is that person will develop leprosy. Miriam was talking trash about Moses and Zipporah, and that's what caused her to become leprous. Interesting, Moses was talking trash about whom? About Israel. He says, if I go back, they won't believe me. And that's when we did the sign with the hand in the bosom. So what he's doing is he's essentially slandering Israel by saying, they won't believe me when I go back. And so he comes up with a leprous hand. Miriam, when she slanders Moses and Zipporah, comes up leprous. So that's where the rabbis get the idea that leprosy is a punishment for evil tongue. We're showing her up. So anyway, we get these 10 lepers and they head off. And what Yeshua says here is go show yourselves to the priest, because the priest is the one who is authorized to proclaim a diagnosis of either you are leprous or you are healed. So Yeshua doesn't just heal them and say, go on about your business. No, he says, go back and talk to the priest, because there is a ritual for bringing them back into the community once they're healed. So he is upholding Moses. And so, verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Yeshua's feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Yeshua answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Notice the theme that's running through this is Israel is not paying attention to what's happening here. Foreigners get it. So you had the Queen of Sheba, you had Nineveh, you now have this Samaritan who's also a foreigner, and so the foreigners are the ones that get it, and Israel is the one who isn't paying attention to the fact that the kingdom of God is in their midst notice that they weren't cleansed on the spot he sent them to the priest and between the time he sent them and the time they arrived at the priest they were healed